Greetings, this is podcast number 81 of Blast the Right. I'm Jack Clark from TheRationalRadical.com, www.TheRationalRadical.com. Today, we're going to discuss some phony claims by George Bush and Dick Cheney about Bush's allegedly unfettered power to wage war in Iraq, and one assumes elsewhere, as he sees fit. Congressional oversight? Surely you jest. You'll hear my first ever interview of a right-winger, a fairly prominent commentator. On this topic, it's a friendly conversation. Intrigued? Let's get right into it. My sources are, and they're all dot-coms unless I say otherwise, an editorial observer column by Adam Cohn in the New York Times, Tom Paine, Find Law, The Nation, The Washington Times, The Litchfield Group, the website of the Senate Judiciary Committee, the website of Representative Dennis Kucinich, VOA News, PrairieWeather.TypePad, WAMU.org, and Fox News, CBS, and CNN. In law school, you usually take at least a beginning course in constitutional law. The subject is often referred to as con law. The situation with Bush and Cheney thus can be described as cons trying to con us about con law. Dick Cheney recently told us all he feels we need to know about the constitutional issues involved here. You cannot run a war by committee. You know, the, the um, Constitution is very clear that the president is, in fact, uh, under uh, Article 2, the commander-in-chief. That's it. Right-wing constitutional law. The Constitution contains this one provision. That's all we need to look at. It means what we say it means. Put your blinders on to anything else. And that's that. George Bush also recently opined to a CBS 60 Minutes correspondent about Congress's proper role in making Iraqi war plans. Frankly, that's not their responsibility. Not their responsibility. Bush is the only one who counts. Congress can take a long walk off a short pier. Given these views that it's none of Congress's business and the president has the unfettered power to do as he likes in conducting the Iraq war, Bush and Cheney conclude and proclaim... Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Here's Bush on 60 Minutes again, asked about Democratic opposition to his surge plan and overall Democratic demands for a bigger role in determining Iraq war policy. Do you believe as Commander-in-Chief you have the authority to put the troops in there no matter what the Congress wants to do? In this situation, I do, yeah. No matter what the Congress wants to do, we're going forward. End of discussion. And Dick Cheney, in his trademark chilling fashion, also gives us, in an interview with Wolf Blitzer, the White House's ignore-everyone-else outlook. What if the Senate passes a resolution saying this is not a good idea? Will that stop you? It won't stop us. It won't stop us? Cheney reveals his truly kingly mindset, doesn't he? It won't stop us? Who the heck is us? It's not the American people who overwhelmingly reject Bush's Iraq policies. It's not Congress. It's not our troops who polled by Zogby a year ago said by a 72% majority that they should be withdrawn within a year, just about now, whether or not the mission was complete. And it certainly isn't the Iraqi people of whom 71% said last September they want U.S. troops out of their country within a year. Blitzer 
probably a little taken aback by Cheney's it-won't-stop-us bombshell, posed the same question a few seconds later. So you're moving forward no matter what the Congress does. We are moving forward. The end of the word forward cuts out there. Sorry. Okay, now that you know what Bush and Cheney are asserting, let's find out what the real truth is. What is the actual constitutional balance between presidential and congressional powers in the war-making arena? This is critical to understand because a confrontation between the White House and Congress may well be in the offing. Quote, Congress is poised to pass a resolution denouncing the troop increase. Down the line, Congress may well consider mandatory caps on the number of troops in Iraq or setting a date for withdrawal. If it does, we may be headed towards a constitutional clash with the administration trying to read powers into the Constitution as it has with its enemy combatant doctrine and presidential signing statements that the founders did not put there. Close quote. Isn't it odd how these strict constructionists, when it suits their needs, make up constitutional doctrines out of whole cloth? The bottom line is, war powers are subject to the same balance of power between the branches as everything else in the Constitution. Quote, the Constitution's drafters were intent on balancing power so no one branch could drift towards despotism. The system of checks and balances that runs through the document divides the war power between the President and Congress. Close quote. We'll establish the ironclad validity of this proposition by examining four areas. One, the text of the Constitution. Two, the intent of the Founding Fathers. Three, Supreme Court decisions, and four, historical precedent. Let's start zipping right through them. Constitutional text. Dick Cheney was certainly correct when he said that Article II of the Constitution made the President Commander-in-Chief. But unlike what Dick Cheney would like you to believe, the story doesn't end there. Cheney spouted a typical right-wing half-truth. Quote, the Constitution's provision that the President is the Commander-in-Chief clearly puts him at the top of the military chain of command. Congress would be overstepping if, for example, it passed a law requiring generals in the field to report directly to the Speaker of the House. But the Constitution also gives Congress an array of war powers. Close quote. The Constitution gives Congress the explicit powers to declare war, to raise and support armies, to provide and maintain a navy, to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, and to make rules concerning captures on land and water. And of course, the Constitution also gives Congress the overall power of the purse, as provided for in Article I. Quote, no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. Close quote. To interpret and understand these provisions, how they allocate power between the executive and legislative branches, constitutional scholars of all political stripes will, for one thing, try to ascertain the intent of the writers of the Constitution. So we ask, did the writers of the Constitution, by designating the President as Commander-in-Chief, intend to give the President broad, untrammeled war powers, as Dick Cheney would have us believe? The answer is clearly not. Quote, In 1787, the existing models of government throughout Europe, particularly in England, placed the war power in foreign affairs solely in the hands of the executive. Close quote. 
that would be the king or other head of state. What were those powers? Quote, Sir William Blackstone, in his commentaries, defined the king's prerogative broadly to include the right to declare war, send and receive ambassadors, make war or peace, make treaties, issue letters of mark and reprisal, that is, authorizing private citizens to undertake military actions, and raise and regulate fleets and armies. Close quote. These are the powers of the king that the framers of the Constitution had just successfully rebelled against in the Revolutionary War. Were they about to follow that kingly model? Hell no! Quote, the framers carefully studied this monarchical model and repudiated it in its entirety. Not a single one of these prerogatives was granted to the president. They are either assigned entirely to Congress, declare war, issue letters of mark and reprisal, raise and regulate fleets and armies, or shared between the Senate and the president, appointing ambassadors and making treaties. The rejection of the British and monarchical models could not have been more sweeping. Close quote. In ascertaining our founding fathers' intent, we not only have this type of historical deductive reasoning, but we have as well the very words of the founders themselves. As summarized by one constitutional expert testifying before Congress, quote, the framers gave Congress the power to initiate war because they concluded, based on the history of other nations, that executives, in their quest for fame and personal glory, had too great an appetite for war and little care for their subjects or the long-term interests of their country. Close quote. For example, there's John Jay. In the early days of our country, as well as before that in the Continental Congress, his experience was largely in foreign affairs. He, quote, warned in Federalist Number 4 that absolute monarchs will often make war when their nations ought to get nothing by it, but for purposes and objects merely personal, such as a thirst for military glory, revenge for personal affronts, ambition, or private compacts to aggrandize or support their particular families or partisans. These and a variety of other motives, which affect only the mind of the sovereign, often lead him to engage in wars not sanctified by justice or the voice and interests of his people." Close quote. How did a guy writing over 200 years ago know about George Bush? Let's see what one other founding father, James Madison, had to say in his own words. In 1793, Madison wrote that war was, quote, the true nurse of executive aggrandizement. In war, the honors and emoluments of office are to be multiplied and it is the executive patronage under which they are to be enjoyed. It is in war, finally, that laurels are to be gathered, and it is the executive brow they are to encircle. The strongest passions and most dangerous weaknesses of the human breast, ambition, avarice, vanity, the honorable or venial love of fame, are all in conspiracy against the desire and duty of peace. Close quote. Again, Anyone you know come to mind? Madison concluded, and listen carefully to this, quote, Those who are to conduct a war cannot, in the nature of things, be proper or safe judges whether a war ought to be commenced, continued, or concluded. The Constitution supposes, what the history of all governments demonstrates, that the executive is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. 
it has accordingly with studied care vested the question of war in the legislature. Close quote. One final note on Founders' intent. In their world, declaring war was not a binary proposition, all-out war or nothing. Quote, in the 18th century, war declarations were often limited in scope. European powers might fight a naval battle in the Americas, for example, but not battle on their own continent. In giving Congress the power to declare war, the Constitution gives it authority to make decisions about a war scope and duration. Close quote. That's only logical. If Congress can cut off funds completely, it can certainly do so in a less severe manner or prescribe conditions regarding the scope and duration of the use of those funds. Okay, the Founding Fathers' intent was crystal clear, wasn't it? Well, the Supreme Court precedent we'll now discuss is crystal clear as well. For hundreds of years, the supreme law of our land has been that Congress can limit the President's conduct of war. One of the earliest cases, and the one to me most directly on point, is called the Flying Fish Case. Sounds like the name of a Hardy Boys mystery. Uh, that reference is probably too ancient for many of you. Look it up. In 1799, there was an undeclared sea war going on between France and the United States. In what is called the Quasi-War, Congress gave President John Adams the power to stop ships heading to French ports. Adams decided to expand that power and ordered that ships coming from French ports be stopped as well. One ship stopped was the Flying Fish. The Flying Fish's owner sued the federal government, claiming Congress had never authorized this ship to be seized since he was sailing from not to a French port. The Supreme Court agreed. It said Adams had no right to issue that order. Quote, John Marshall, the nation's greatest chief justice, declared that, even in a time of hostilities, a president's decision to act militarily beyond what Congress had authorized was unlawful. Close quote. In the law, we reason by analogy. So, Two other famous Supreme Court rulings cited in this area are the 1952 steel seizure case and the recent Hamden v. Rumsfeld decision. In 1952, the nation was in the midst of the Korean War. There was labor unrest in the steel mills. Since steel was a critical need in that war, Congress established procedures for handling the labor unrest. Truman instead seized the steel mills to avert a strike. The court ruled that Truman had no power to do so because Congress had mandated other procedures to guarantee the continued production of steel. In Hamden v. Rumsfeld, in the midst of our current-day war on terror, the Supreme Court, quote, held that President Bush must follow congressional guidelines when he sets up military tribunals for detainees, close quote. Follow congressional guidelines. Let's take a quick break, and when we return, you'll hear, among other things, my friendly talk with a right-winger. Before we get back to the main segment, your one-minute voting report. 
We're barely hanging in the top ten at number nine by a few votes. Thanks to everyone who voted so far, we're on a course for a record month. But we still need to increase our efforts to remain in the top ten. Being in the top ten increases the visibility of Blast the Writing, gets a lot of new subscribers. So, towards that end, I want to make everyone an offer you can't refuse. Or so I hope. You get a half hour a week, two hours a month, of a show you enjoy listening to. And what will I ask in return? Ten seconds of your time once a month to go vote for Blast the Writer Podcast Alley which you can do from the one-click link on the podcast homepage. Two hours for ten seconds. You could even go vote right now if you want to. Deal? Cool. To review... So far, we've covered the constitutional text, the intent of the Founding Fathers, and Supreme Court precedent. Let's briefly go over some historical precedents on troop caps and other limitations imposed by Congress on the conduct of war. Vietnam. We have three here. December 1970. Congress says funds can't be used to put U.S. ground combat troops into Cambodia or to provide U.S. advisors to that nation. June 1973. Congress sets the date for termination of funding for all Southeast Asia combat operations. 1974, the Foreign Assistance Act, quote, capped the number of American military personnel in South Vietnam at 4,000 within six months, close quote. There's also Lebanon. The 1983 Lebanon Emergency Assistance Act said the president had to get the okay of Congress before he could order any major increase in the number or role of U.S. forces in that country. How about Somalia? Congress cut off funding for most military operations there after March 31, 1994. And finally, Bosnia. Congress, quote, passed spending legislation that prevented U.S. troops from serving in Bosnia after June 30, 1998, unless the president made certain assurances, close quote. I hope you're ready to agree with me now that it's a rock-solid proposition that no one should argue with, that Congress has the power to guide and curtail the scope and duration of military operations as well as the power to end the operations totally. As Duke University law professor and Clinton Justice Department official Walter Dellinger recently summed it up at Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, quote, The President, as Commander-in-Chief, has the authority to choose the subcommanders to determine the tactics, to decide how to carry out the tasks which the military has been assigned. But it is ultimately Congress that decides the size, scope, and duration of the use of military force, and this has been recognized by administrations of both political parties throughout our time." Close quote. Before you right-wingers start a fuss in that, what can you expect from a Clintonite? Two staunch conservatives at that hearing reached similar conclusions. One was Bradford Berenson, an associate counsel to George W. Bush early in his administration. In his testimony, Berenson acknowledged that the Constitution and court rulings make clear Congress's broad authority to guide military activities. While he said as a matter of policy he doesn't think Congress should exercise this authority, Berenson said flat out that, quote, 
I think the constitutional scheme does give Congress broad authority to terminate a war. Close quote. Another longtime right-wing type gentleman is University of Virginia law professor Robert Turner. His rightist credentials? How about working at the Pentagon, the White House, and the State Department during the Reagan administration, and then from 2001 to 2003 in the Bush White House Counsel's Office? Like Berenson, Turner said he wouldn't like to see it done as a matter of policy, but that, quote, Congress does indeed possess the power to limit the broad outlines of hostilities through legislation, close quote. Against this onslaught of fact and learned opinion, what do the Bushian right-wingers offer? Quote, the Bush administration insists that if Congress tries to manage the Iraq war, it will leave the commander-in-chief with too little authority. But the greater danger is the one Madison recognized at the nation's founding, that all the power will be left with the person, quote, most interested in war and most prone to it, close quote. And in this case, with Bush, any authority is too much authority. Now for a treat. Let's get into the thinking of one more conservative acknowledging these truths. In fact, this gentleman has been quite outspoken against Bush's excessive power claims, not only in this area, but in the warrantless wiretapping controversy as well. We heard him in Podcast 23 on that issue. He is conservative constitutional lawyer Bruce Fine, who's been an adjunct scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a resident scholar at the Heritage Foundation. He's a commentator on mainstream media outlets and has testified before Congress on these issues. He wrote last week in the Washington Times about Congress's power to end the Iraq war, quote, The founding fathers expected the president to contrive foreign conflicts to aggrandize executive authority and to suppress domestic opposition. They did not expect Congress to flinch from asserting its own national security prerogatives. If the American people do not complain, Congress will remain invertebrate. Close quote. Now, back in the aforementioned Podcast 23, I played a clip of Bruce Fine appearing on NPR with two other conservatives, one of whom you'll hear on the following clip, David Keene, chairman of the American Conservative Union. The subject was Bush's claim he can engage in wiretapping without following congressionally legislated procedures. The claim that uh, in trying to protect Americans and in pursuing his powers as commander-in-chief, uh, that a president uh, has power that inherently trumps the rest of the Constitution uh, is a sort of exaggerated claim of power on the behalf of uh, on behalf of this president or any other president for that matter. It's more power uh, than King George the Third had at the time of the Revolution uh, in in asserting the theory that anything the president thinks is helpful to fighting the war against terrorism, he can do. He doesn't that's have to exactly consult right. any other branch of government. And, and, and that was why he claimed that he could ignore the torture convention. Right. We and have in could, all of these things, and this is not unique to this war, but it's being carried to an extreme in this in this war. We have uh, we have the the, the folks whose mission in their eyes is to protect us and to protect our security, saying that that trumps absolutely everything else. And in our history, when we allow that attitude to prevail, we get into trouble. I wondered if Bruce finds more power than King George had at the time of the revolution analysis also applied to the Bush-Cheney claims in the war-making powers area we're discussing today. 
So I called up Bruce Fine and asked him. We spoke about some issues that aren't germane here, so what follows are the portions of our conversation dealing with the presidential war-making powers issue. I posted a link to the full interview if you'd like to hear it on my data resources page. Here's Bruce Fine and I. I'm speaking with conservative constitutional scholar Bruce Fine. He wrote in connection with George Bush's assertion of wiretapping powers, it's more power than King George III had at any time of the revolution in asserting the theory that anything the president thinks is helpful to fighting the war against terrorism, he can do. So I'd like to ask Mr. Fine now, in connection with George Bush's assertion of war-making powers, that it's uh, none of Congress's business that he wants to escalate the conflict with a surge, the conflict in Iraq, would that apply also that it's more power than King George III had in the war-making powers arena? Yes. Uh, for example, uh, in the glorious revolution that culminated in the 1688 English Bill of Rights, the king was deprived his authority to spend money for a war without the consent of Parliament. Uh, during the years under King Charles I, for example, the uh, Civil War years of the 1640s, uh, Charles was levying a ship tax without the consent of Parliament and using some of that money to conduct wars against France and Spain that the Parliament did not approve of. Uh, so that King George III was still running a foreign policy, a national security policy that was subject to the power of the purse of the British Parliament. Whereas Bush basically has said, I can, I can dispatch my troops anytime, any place, anywhere. I don't need any authority from Congress. Uh, and that tacitly suggests that even if Congress sought to use the power of the purse to end uh, our presence or to prevent carrying the war in Iraq into Iran, the president, if he said it's important to national security, uh, could go ahead and violate that congressional limitation and expand the war. I was a little stunned that this obviously well-learned and conservative constitutional scholar would speculate that Bush would go that far, that he might attempt to wage war even if Congress cut off funds. So I thought I'd double-check and ask him again. That truly is scary. The non-binding resolution that he and Cheney were speaking about was non-binding, so I was thinking, well, they're saying I'm not gonna, I'm, we're going to ignore it because it's non-binding, but you're saying from your reading of things, he might even say that if Congress decided to uh, say no more funding for a surge or for escalation, you can only use the money to withdraw troops. You, could George Bush, you think, in his own mind say, no, I can still fight the war because it's a national security issue and I'm the commander-in-chief? Well, he's, I mean, I wouldn't put it beyond him to do that. Remember, we have a president who has proclaimed that all of the world, the entire world, is a battlefield because Osama says he wants to kill us everywhere. And therefore, under his theory, he can use military tactics everywhere in the world, including on the streets of Washington, D.C., or Los Angeles, or San Francisco. Now, what do military tactics include? That means shooting to kill, uh, rocket uh, people or places that are thought in the mind of the military, that'd be al-Qaeda. Let's dig concrete. You remember Jose Padilla was initially detained as an illegal enemy combatant. He had landed at O'Hare Airport in right. Chicago. Right. And under the theory of the president, if he wished, instead of arresting Mr. Padilla, they could have shot him or launched a missile at him uh, in the airport saying, hey, he's a military figure. We're in war. This is a war zone. All the world is a war zone, so we can use military well, tactics Let's here. kill him. We have and the it's right. that kind of extravagant claim that the president has refused to renounce. Okay. Well, I hear what you're saying, and it sound, it's even worse than uh, what I thought. 
just part of that same arrogance and hubris, is that how you say the word, hubris, that uh, characterizes their whole approach to executive power and what they can do with no checks and balances. Yeah, it's a unitary government. There's only one branch that counts. Um, and uh, in the manner of King Louis Fourteenth of France, uh, the state, uh, I am the state, I am the law. L'état, c'est moi. I remember my French correctly from high school. You get an A-plus for that. Thank you. You know, how ironic is it? Uh, king, it's, it's another George is king. Now, he, he was King George III. It's too bad this isn't the third Bush in office. Then it would really be perfect. Another King George III. He's only King George II, maybe, or something. That's correct. Um, but we can't, we can't expect history to produce the greatest drama and alliteration that we'd like. It's close, but no banana. All right. Right. Well, listen, uh, I appreciate you speaking to me very much. Thank you mu- very much, Bruce Fine. And do you have a website you want to... Oh, uh, we have a website, www.fineandfine.com. Thank you very much. Okay, good. There you have it, straight from a rock-ribbed conservative's mouth. Bush, essentially, may well be on a course for a constitutional crisis of mammoth proportions. I should note that, as Bruce Fine is undoubtedly aware, Bush and Cheney have been paying lip service to the power of Congress to limit or cut off funding. Fine was speaking to what he analyzes as Bush and Cheney's real intentions and what their subsequent actual actions might be in the event of a congressional fund limitation or cutoff. One other thing before we close. If you're debating a right-winger on this issue, a right-wing mantra of late you'll hear is that the Democrats have no plan, the Democrats have no plan. Indeed, the 60 Minutes correspondent interviewing Bush assumed as much. There's no Democrat plan. It doesn't look like it to me. Well, not only is there clear-cut congressional authority to limit and end the Iraq war, but at least two Democrats have come up with feasible plans to do so in a responsible manner. They are Senator Russ Feingold with his Iraq Redeployment Act of 2007 and Representative Dennis Kucinich with his Kucinich plan, he calls it. Going into the details of these two plans is beyond the scope of today's podcast. Suffice it to say here that the plans variously provide for safeguards for our troops until they are safely withdrawn from Iraq in the next six months, as well as measures to leave Iraq in a manner that minimizes the chances of increased violence after our departure. It's important that you understand these plans are not cut and run, leaving behind what will become a worse mess and a worse human rights situation. No, they're the way to stop creating a further mess. Remember, Nearly 80% of Iraqis say that our presence provokes more violence than it prevents. A key element of the Kucinich plan is that by announcing our withdrawal and thereafter closing our military bases, a regional conference would be more likely able to develop a security and stabilization force for Iraq. It's also interesting to note, in the Blast the Right context, that Kucinich's plan would prevent Iraq from falling under the World Bank IMF boot heel and would reverse as well the U.S. effort to impose extreme right-wing privatization on the Iraqi economy. Kucinich knows what's going on. See Podcast 59, and also 56, about these issues. The importance of our having discussed today the issue of congressional power to limit and end wars is underscored by an email I recently received from a listener who wrote in the context of bringing our troops home from Iraq, quote, The way I interpreted it was always, it'll be nigh on impossible to end the war while Bush is running things, 
but they'd be back within a few months, close quote, of an anti-war Democrat being elected. No, it's not impossible at all. As we've seen, and that listener now hopefully knows, Congress has the power to do so right now. Senator Feingold, however, poses the $64,000 question, quote, If and when Congress acts on the will of the American people by ending our involvement in the Iraq War, Congress will be performing the role assigned to it by the Founding Fathers, defining the nature of our military commitments and acting as a check on a president whose policies are weakening our nation. As the hearing I chaired in the Senate Judiciary Committee made clear, this legislation is fully consistent with the Constitution of the United States. Since the President is adamant about pursuing his failed policies in Iraq, Congress has the duty to stand up and use its constitutional power to stop him. If Congress doesn't stop this war, it's not because it doesn't have the power. It's because it doesn't have the will. Close quote. Does Congress have the will? Will it have the will? We progressives have to give Congress the will, provided a transfusion of red-blooded courage, perform on that august legislative body a transplant of steely backbone. We need to shout it from the rooftops at the top of our lungs. Call 202-224-3121. Demand that your senators and representatives sign on to the Feingold Bill or support the Kucinich Plan. Spread the word. Demonstrate. Stop the Bushian right wing in its bloody tracks. Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right and vote for Blast the Right at podcastalley.com. There's a one-click link to do each of those on the podcast homepage. You get to the podcast homepage by typing in Blast the Right in Google, and I'm the first result. A special shout-out to all you Live 365 and Red Dragon 365 listeners. Great to have you on board. Consider coming over to the podcast homepage and subscribing. Could the listener who posted a comment on Podcast Alley as Zyda Bay please email me? I want to ask you something. Music credits. The break music was L.A. Nightmare by 22 Caliber and Not the One Blues by Burnshee Thornside. We'll close with a little bit of Peter Finch as Howard Beale in the classic film Network, combined with No Justice, No Peace by Wacky Avelli. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on my data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. Keep all that great email coming in. My address is rational at adelphia.net. You can also call in and leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. If you prefer, you can leave your comment on Skype. My name there is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. You've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, 
and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. We're mad as hell and we ain't going to take it anymore. No justice, no peace. We're mad